Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. Today's program is a tribute to Kentucky women in traditional music and was produced by Rich Kirby and John Harrod. Hello, I'm John Harrod, and this is a tribute to some of the women who were pioneers and masters in Kentucky traditional music. Some of them had professional careers and wide-ranging influence, while some were not known outside their own communities. Wished I was in Bowling Green, sitting in my chair. One arm around my pretty little girl, nothing around my dear, nothing around my dear. Bowling Green, oh, good old Bowling Green. Today, women performers lead the way in all forms of what we might call roots music, from old time to bluegrass to country. But this is not anything new. In nearly all the communities I saw when I was traveling around the state learning about this music, there were women who sang and played the banjo, fiddle, dulcimer, and guitar. It seemed that where music was concerned, the gender roles didn't apply so much. Women were as much carriers of the traditions as men, and sometimes more so. In the ballad tradition that can be traced all the way back to the 13th century, women seemed to be the primary custodians. The old songs and stories were passed down in the home from mothers and grandmothers to children and survived that way for hundreds of years with no other audience. I got my own love and appreciation of music from women. The first voice I can remember was my mother's beautiful alto in the Baghdad Baptist Church. I heard the voices of the Carter family, the Chuckwagon Gang, and Molly O'Day on my grandfather's radio, not knowing at the time where it was leading me. I learned to play the guitar from a girl I had a crush on, because she played the guitar, in high school. Those voices have merged and blended and called to me over the years until I believe there is one sound, and it comes from the heart of creation. Even though women singers and all-girl bands are now popular in old-time bluegrass and country music, it's still a journey of discovery because singing is about finding your own voice. Every voice is unique, just as people are, and every voice has its own potential for development and expression. You start by imitating someone or several ones, and you learn to use your voice in new ways and find out what you can do. But imitation then leads you back into your own true nature, where you discover your own true self. I think it's really a spiritual journey about finding out who you are and how you're connected to creation and other people. And if you embrace it, you have something to give that connects you with people at the deepest level. And that's why we do it. Addie Graham was Rich Kirby's grandmother. Rich is a musician, activist, and one of the founders of June Apple Records, the music production company at Apple Shop. Addie had a colorful life spanning the two world wars and the Great Depression. She was born in 1890 in Wolf County on the headwaters of the Red River. Her repertoire was typical of Appalachian singers and included child ballads, old Baptist hymns, black blues, and frolic pieces. Our family had music in them. It was born then, and you can't get it out. That's one thing you can't get rid of is singing. She succinctly described her emotional connection with music. There's times I get so upset, I feel like I have to sing me a good song. 
Three Little Babes is number 79 in the child collection, in which the mother is visited by the spirits of her dead children. There was a lady, but a lady girl, and children she had three. She sent them away to the orphan's home to learn those grammarys. They hadn't been gone but a very short time, only three weeks to a day, till they swiftly came rolling along and stole my little babies away. She prayed there might be a king in heaven who wore the brightest crown that they might send her tender little babes tonight or in the morning soon. It was a getting old Christmas times. The nights they were long and cold. Well, who could she see but her tender little babes come running to their mother at home? She spread them a table both long and wide. On it she put bread and wine. Come eat, come drink, my tender little babes. Come eat and drink of mine. We do not want your bread, dear mother, or neither can we drink your wine. For yonder stands our dear Savior, Lord, awaiting for us to be done. We're going home, said the oldest one. We're going home, she cried. We're going home to die no more. We're sailing o'er the tide. I, my father made that last verse, Judge. So help me God, he did. That was Addie Graham. There are different theories about why there were more women banjo players than fiddlers, but many women did play the fiddle, and the ones who did commanded great respect in their communities. Lella Todd, born in 1891, was one of the best traditional fiddlers I ever heard. She lived on Red River in Powell County, near the little community of Spout Springs. Even though she and her husband had no children, she was the babysitter and surrogate grandmother to all the children in the neighborhood. She entertained them with her fiddle, banjo, guitar, and ghost stories. After school, she had them dancing, playing games, and fishing in Red River. She played for the local square dances and was the fiddler in demand for the many informal music gatherings that kept the old tunes of the area alive. This home recording of her playing was made by Asa Martin, who cared enough to record the local musicians he played with for posterity. Recorded on a three-inch reel, it's a bit noisy, but you can hear her rolling bow, articulate phrasing, and the sure timing that other musicians admired so much. 
Blanche Coldiron was born Blanche Hurt at Pine Ridge in Wolf County in 1922. She moved to Powell County as a young girl and picked up the banjo and fiddle from her brothers and various neighbors. Yeah, yeah I was uh, beating around on the banjo a little bit and uh, string beans left Hasty uh, Martin sponge and he was kind of looking around for a banjo picker and uh, he asked my brother if he'd bring me down. So Asa knew your brothers. Yeah. Or somebody told him about him or something. He might have come up to the house. I don't know how it was. Anyhow, my brother took me down there one night. He lived at Waltersville, near Asa Clay City. Did. Lived at Waltersville at that time. And I went down there and played what I knew. And then he... Uh, told my brother he'd like for us to go with him, you know, play at Lexington. And, uh, my mother wouldn't let me go. I was only 15 unless my brother was with me. And she said, I want to see AC first and I want to talk to him. <laughs> well, she'd give him the lowdown. She'd give him instructions. <laughs> so uh, he really treated me with respect. He was, he did. He, I can say that about him. 
At age 15, she joined her brother in Asa Martin's Kentucky Hillbillies Troop on radio station WLAP in Lexington, where she was billed as Blanche the Mountain Girl. So we went in this big old packer, and he had this big trunk. He built himself on the back out of uh, boards and painted it. So he'd pick you up, and you'd ride in in that packer. This is a funny little story. Uh, we was going down to play one morning, and uh, I think we played 11 o'clock, somewhere along there. And uh, go along uh, down to Clark County. Winchester. This is between Winchester and Lexington. And this old farmer was driving a herd of cattle along. And just as we started to go by, this herd of cattle across the road. They had this big old uh, bass fiddle. They called them bull fiddles then. <laughs> I don't know what you heard them called. But it was extra large. It wasn't just, uh, it was extra large. Had tied on the outside, the neck up over the fender and, and laying on the running board and had tied on there. And all this big herd of cattle going behind us and in front of us and we was all just sitting there. You know, thought that would be crushed any minute. But they they got by and never even touched it. <laughs> I was a close call. I tell you, everybody was still as a mouse. <laughs> We sat there to laugh all the herd cattle got by. We've had everything happen. We'd go along one day and a big old rooster flew in front of us. Hit the windshield and it didn't break it. It's a thousand waters hand, but it kinda of hit up high. The feathers flew every way. <laughs> we had to everything funny that way it happened, you know. When you say you didn't break it, you didn't mean the rooster, you meant the window. <laughs> Broke the rooster all right, I mean, didn't break the windshield. <laughs> you know, we traveled on these, uh, they called them WPA roads, and they had white, white uh, crushed gravel on That was a black packer, but when we start out, but when we get there, it'd be white. <laughs> <laughs> At 17, Blanche married Earl Coldiron and moved to Grant County to raise a family, but she continued to perform locally at dances, fairs, and family gatherings. Blanche loved all varieties of country music, from traditional to modern. She played the fiddle in a country and western band and also played guitar, mandolin, and dobro. She was the local luthier who worked on everyone's instruments, and she wrote a number of good bluegrass and children's songs. But it was her banjo playing that took center stage for her many fans and friends.
That was Blanche Coldiron. If you go to the Red River Gorge and stand on the pinnacle of Chimney Top Rock, you will be looking down on Pincham Tight Holler, the home place of Lily Mae Ledford. We moved on down the river, and I was down by the creek uh, picking poke, and a little boy uh, came along with an old uh, fiddle in his hand, swinging it along, batting weeds with it, and a tree branch would get close to his face. He'd reach up and bat it out of its way. I was afraid to me that was a sacred thing, and I felt it was like something alive, and I, and I, I, was, I was afraid he was going to damage it. And it already had all the damage it could take, I think. But anyway, I stopped him and asked him, uh, where is he going that fiddle? And he said, oh, i just going home. I'll give it to me. I stayed there last night. And I said, well, uh, do you play? He said, oh, no, I can't play. I, I was going to take it and trade it off. He, he didn't want it, and I don't want it. I said, well, uh, would you sell it to me if I find you some things that you, at home that to uh, trade with? He said, yes. And I said, well, come go home with me. and. Uh, I'll see what I can find. Well, I found several things, and he picked out what he wanted. There's an old pair of gum boots, I remember, and a slingshot, and there's a little old sweater belonging to one of my brothers, and an old flashlight that had no batteries and maybe nothing else on it, I don't remember. And uh, just all the little old attractions I could find, you know, to, to then get that fiddle away from him somehow. And he finally picked out the things he wanted, and there went my precious box of crayons that, I, that was so hard to come by. He only cost a nickel, but how hard it was to come by a nickel, you know, in the first place. Well, um, he felt like he got the best end of the deal. I, I knew the way he strutted down the road, you know, smiling to himself. And I thought I got the best end of the deal. In fact, the new had. And that old fiddle didn't have nothing on it. No keys, no no apron to anchor the strings to, and, uh, of course, no strings or bridge or no bow. Well, I had to make all that. So I could be in and gather up my stuff. Well, I got me a big, thick piece of wood and whittled out the apron part and just cobbled it up and halfway shaped it, you know. And then I took a red-hot wire and burnt the four holes I needed in it. I'd seen my daddy do that in his woodcrafting and carpentry. Well, uh, then I whittled out my keys, bridge, and uh, found some old scraps of banjo strings here and there and, and drawers and things. Strung my fiddle up. And then I had to have a bowl. So I got, again, I went and got me a green willow stick, big long one this time, and uh, knew it had to have hair instead of a rubber string. So we had an old white workhorse, and he was uh, just as dirty as he could be, and the boys were always teasing him, and they had him kind of mean. I was afraid of him. And uh, I went into hunting for him. I found him right in the barn, right in the very place with his backside pointed right toward me. Well, I climbed up in a stall, cow stall first, and uh, got on top of it and reached over with a big pair of scissors and chopped me out a great hunk out of his tail. He kicked a little and swung his head around at me, but he didn't bite, and I got away and uh, put that on my, fastened that each end of my stick. And bend it, you know, you had to bend it so the bow would be tied, so it looked like something you shoot arrows with. But uh, it was dirty and greasy, and I, I didn't know about washing them, so uh, I went and got some rosin out of pine stump, and it got kind of old and hard, you know, and, and rosin my bow good with that. And again, went up behind a big rock, hiding from Mama, and stayed up there all day long. And uh, I first tried the old A-corded style tuning. I think that uh, Pete Seeger has named it the cross tuning, or someone has. Thank you. 
At age 17, Lily Mae Ledford was walking eight miles out of this hollow to play for tips at the railway station at Natural Bridge, where mountain musicians played for the tourists who would come down on excursion trains for the weekend. In 1936, she entered and won a talent contest put on by John Lair and gained a spot on WLS's National Barn Dance in Chicago. She soon followed Lair and his troop to Cincinnati and then back to Kentucky to Renfro Valley where she led the Coon Creek Girls, the country's first all-girl string band. Lily May related a story about the conflict between the newer and the older styles of music that every generation must deal with. Pretty Polly was one that Mama told us we could sing. Now, while Bill Jones put her foot down on that, and little Corey, and Frank and Johnny, because of drinking and uh, wine drinking, you know, and moonshining mentioned in some of them, and uh, she said we could sing Pretty Polly, and she mentioned some other old songs. I said, well, Mama, I don't know why you think uh, those songs that's got whiskey and drinking in that don't mean we have to go out and bring it in here in the house and drink it. That just means we'd be singing about it. Everybody else does. She said, yeah, you want to be like that sorry bunch that lives down the road. All the women down there picking the banjo and singing them old drunkard songs. And she said, the men are making rock gut moonshine. And she said, now, that's all right maybe for the boys, but she said, now, don't you girls sing that. Now, Pretty Polly is one. There's, there's your good love song. I said, Mama, Pretty Polly has got a murder in it. That man killed Pretty Polly. <laughs> it's better to kill somebody or to drink. And she said, I think it's, it's better to kill somebody. She said, he probably wouldn't have killed her if he hadn't been drunk. <laughs> Here it is, pretty Polly. Where is pretty Polly? Oh, yonder she stands. Where is pretty Polly? Oh, yonder she stands. Gold diamonds on her fingers and her little white hand. Some pleasure to see. I led her over hills and valleys so deep. I led her over hills and valleys so deep. And then pretty Polly, she began to weep. Willie, oh Willie, I'm afraid of your way. Polly, pretty Polly, your guess is about right. Polly, pretty Polly, your guess is about right. I dug on your grave the biggest part of last night. We went a little further, and what did she spy? A newly dug grave with a spade lying by. Threw her arms around me and begged for her life. She threw her arms around me and begged for her life. So deep into her bosom I plunged the fatal knife. 
Lily May loved to tell her own story to young listeners. She described what life on the road was like as a young female musician in those days. So uh, we went on, and pretty soon we were getting baskets fan mail, and people were crowding the studio. It was a large studio, almost as big as this auditorium. And uh, so the manager, had, he had to scare up some chairs and uh, get those people in there. Then the stairway would be filled, and then the the street, the block, that way down the end of the block and around the corner, people would line up every day for our 30-minute program. See, radio was a big thing in those days, uh, like TV is now. And then the next biggest was the movies. And if you made it radio and got popular there, you were pretty well, you were close enough on top to, uh, you know, to feel you, you were about as good as any of the other entertainers. Uh, we were getting fan mail from all from the soldiers there was a that was peacetime and but there was a soldier camp nearby and they just uh, uh, sent uh, nicest uh, letters and they and sometimes sent little gifts a ribbon for our hair we wore ribbons in our hair on the stage at that time and they would send uh, sometimes marriage proposals we'd get those i remember one time a man wrote me a letter and sent a picture of himself and he was a farm boy and he told me that in his letter and he said, a farm boy, and you being a farm girl, we'd make a good couple, he said, I believe. And he said, now, I'll promise you one thing. He said, I'd never come home and give you a whipping like I used to my first wife. He said, <laughs> he said I'm a better man now than I was then. And he said, don't drink near as bad as I did. Well, uh, <laughs> From 1975 to 1979, I had the pleasure to play with Lily May in a band that played in a couple of different student bars in Lexington. We also performed in schools in eastern Kentucky and for benefits to save her beloved Red River Gorge from developers. Lily May, like many of her generation, had lived a hard life, but her music transcended the pain and difficulties and won her a new national following in her later years. Well, we were scared to death when we got up there and saw it was all young people out there. All that hair and beard sitting out there, 15,000 of them. And in, we hadn't been used to playing for young people. We'd always played for middle-aged folks and older people and farm families. And uh, well, the ball started rolling from there. We went out there and it went over just fine. They liked our songs, they liked everything we said, and they were just as sweet as they could be. And uh, they were college-bred kids, most of them. And I thought, by golly, I can't, I can't believe it. It's like going into another world and uh, finding you're accepted by aliens, you know, or strangers, or, or we were aliens. 
But it, several other people came around that were going to have fest, their own festivals and talked to us girls about playing more. And so it began to snowball. And then Rosie and Susie moved to Florida. Rosie for her health and Susie because her husband's work took her there. So there was nobody left but me. And uh, I thought, well, no, I can just rest back easy because nobody want me. But pretty soon they came after me then since there wasn't nobody else left. And uh, so I'm last remnant of the old Coon Creek girls. But anyway, Mike Seeger got it started, got me started back to playing. Mike Seeger got me some good tours, like the one that lasted a month out on the West Coast. And uh, oh, that was wonderful to go out there. California, we'd, we'd never been further west than, uh, I believe it was Iowa that I played when I was at WLS. And uh, all old time music was loved out there. And see, everything we did for them, they accepted so well, both there and up in Canada. And uh, I kind of felt back in it. And I've been happier, I believe, than I did. I believe I'm happier doing it this than I was when we were young girls. So uh, it's been a pleasure this weekend and has absolutely flooded my heart and soul. Her haunting rendition of Red Rocking Chair, pick two finger style on the banjo, resonates with the loss and tragedy that we all have to deal with in this life. to Kentucky Women in Traditional Music, a look back at some of the women who are masters of traditional music in Kentucky. We'll be back right after this.
You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT 88.7 FM. This episode explores the role of women in Kentucky traditional music. It was produced by Rich Kirby and John Harrod. Major's professional career began when she was 20 years old on radio station WCTT in Corbin. She eventually joined the Renfro Valley Barn Dance and was for a time a member of the Coon Creek Girls. Like most rural people who came through the Great Depression, Dora May also had a hard life. Uh, how I was taught to play, you know, uh, and grandmother raised me. And I done anything Granny told me to do. And she taught me, I remember from the first time she taught me to pick. And the little bitty hand, she, I could hear her say, shake little hand, hon, shake little hand. Woe me, woe mo, she taught me, that was one of the first ones she kind of taught me to play. And she teach me to use my thumb and, and rhythm with my hands, you know, and everything she did. So she said, yeah, woe me, woe I can't another see. Uh, it was, her name was Aunt Sally Young. That's what her name Where, where did she live? God, she never did do out. No, she lived in, right in the head of Homebrew Holler. That's why I'm still sold that. I'm a sold my old home place. I'm, they're supposed to bring me the money down here for it next week. Of course, I have to go make the deeds and Is that close to here? They get fixing to make me a check for it. I'm, I'm going to give it to Tabitha. Yeah, I am. In later years, Dora May could usually be found picking with friends around her camper at the local bluegrass festivals. Mark Wilson and I recorded her in 1997 for a banjo anthology on Rounder Records after a recent tragedy that had occurred in her family. But she insisted on going through with the session and played for us on what she said was a haunted banjo that had played itself in the middle of the night. If we ever doubted the power of music to overcome pain and suffering, Dora May made believers out of us on that day. Here's a song from the time when she played with the Coon Creek Girls at Renfro Valley. Lily Mae Ledford is the fiddler here, and Dora Mae is playing the banjo and singing.
Following the Coon Creek Girls, another female string band, the Ambergie Sisters, were the daughters of a coal miner and farmer from Neon in eastern Kentucky. Bertha played the fiddle, Irene the guitar, and Opal the banjo and mandolin. Like Lily May, they were teenagers when they began their performing career in Lexington. Irene tells the story. The only rough spots that I can recall was when I first started, I went a few days pretty hungry and was too proud to ride home and let my mommy and daddy know it because if I had, they'd have come and got me. And I'll never forget when we first went to Lexington, Kentucky to the radio job, was with an all-girl band working for this man. And this was a bad awakening because we really and truly were so innocent. And uh, this man, of course, he was a married man, had a big family. He would try to, to make advances toward us girls. And many times, I would slap his face. That's one thing that, that is, is rough on a woman. You have to just remember where you come from and, and how to handle it. And I think I've handled it pretty well. After stints in Bluefield, West Virginia, and Renfro Valley, where they were also members of Lily Mae's Coon Creek Girls, they ended up in Atlanta in 1940 on station WSB with new names. We started out in Lexington, Kentucky, WLAP, in 39. And then uh, John Lair had the Renfro Valley Barn Dance. I'm sure you're acquainted with that. Uh, he heard of us and he brought us to Renfro Valley. And we became the Coon Creek Girls along with Lily Mae Ledford. And then he formed a, another country show to start in Atlanta, Georgia. He was gonna call it the WSB Barn Dance. And instead of being called the Coon Creek Girls, then we were called the Hoot Owl Holler Girls. We've been called nearly everything. The three of us girls, when we got into Atlanta to be the Hoot Owl Holler Girls, our picture was on the front page of the Atlanta Journal. Down under there, it said Minnie, Maddie, and Martha, the Hoot Owl Holler Girls. So we had to sit down and pick out who's Minnie, and who's Maddie, and who's Martha. There, without John Lair looking over their shoulder, they were considerably more rowdy than the Coon Creek girls. The Ambergie's biggest hit, You Can't Live With Them and You Can't Live Without Them, was written by Bertha after a fight with her husband. Rain. 
don't fuss and fight, they'll stay out late at night while you're home rocking baby doll alone. And then if you ask him where you've been, you're sure to fall your happy home. But we can't live with a man, we can't live without him. What are us poor girls gonna do? Now, when we marry, that's all right. Yeah, but you know we don't like to fight. But there ain't nothing else for us to do. No, there ain't nothing else for us to do. The Ambergies, like many professional performers of the time, played and recorded under so many different names that it's sometimes difficult to keep up with who was who. In Atlanta, Irene, the alto in the group, married James Roberts, the son of Kentucky's fiddle and Doc Roberts. They adopted yet another stage name and performed and recorded as the gospel duet James and Martha Carson. Their divorce, played out in public in the country music world, threatened her career. A divorced woman could not sing gospel songs. After we broke up Capitol Records, uh, wouldn't let me do a solo. Uh, the A&R man was D. Kilpatrick at the time. D. Kilpatrick would come to Knoxville after we were party company. I said, well, I'm just going, I'm not going to build any more duets. And he said, well, Martha, you just can't sing a solo. I says, okay. I said, whatever I do from this point on, I'll do by myself. And if it, if it goes, that's great. And if it don't, I'll be the only one to hit the ground. And he said, well, we're just not going to record you as a solo singer. And I said, well, just sit on that contract, because my contract was enforced for three more years. And I said, just sit on that contract and see what you hatch out. I'd started singing my solos on the midday merry-go-round. It was almost like just starting all over to get up and sing by myself anyway, you know, because I'd started out originally with my two sisters and then the duet. And then all of a sudden by myself, it, it was a real weird feeling. The stress involved with starting her career anew as a solo performer led to her biggest hit, Satisfied. I had, I had not established any, any confidence in my ability to stand alone, but I was trying to. We started over the Great Smoky Mountains to do a show that night. And I've never been a crybaby, but the tears just came uncontrollable. I cried all the way through Gatlinburg and about halfway up the Great Smoky Mountains. I was riding in the back seat of Bill Carlisle's car and uh, all of a sudden, it was just like a voice spoke to me and says, why are you crying? I'm satisfied and you're satisfied. And there came the song, just like a gush of lightning. And I couldn't find a thing to write on in my purse. And I looked down at the floor, there was an old dirty, Blank check on the floorboard of Bill Carlisle's car had muddy shoe prints all over it, but it, it was dry. We got to Bryson City, North Carolina. I was the happiest person in the world. I just, the song brought me such comfort. I loved the way it sounded. Yeah. 
Young Elvis Presley was one of her biggest fans and would go to her shows and hang out backstage and sing with her. Seeing Martha Carson on stage dancing and belting it out in high heels, it was easy to see the influence she had on Elvis and the subsequent history of both rock and roll and gospel music. Her integrity, commitment to her music and spiritual life, her sincerity and charisma, affirm her place as one of the greatest performers to ever give the old mountain music to the wider world. Be yourself. Don't try to sound like nobody else because God didn't make but one you and God didn't make but one Martha Carson. That's what the people need. They need to hear you, your originality. Not you trying to sound like Patsy Cline or Katie Wells or whatever. I think that's the most important thing I could tell them. And just to always be on guard and try to keep uh, their morals down through the years in the middle of the road. Because it, it really is wonderful to have been in the business as many years as I have and have the great respect that I enjoy. Martha Carson. Of all the women who followed their music into professional careers, no one ever embodied the emotion of mountain gospel singing better than Molly O'Day. Mary Buffwack and Robert Orman, in their excellent history of women in country music, finding her voice, described her sound as a throbbing, sobbing, 
thrilling, chilling delivery, full of Pentecostal fervor and conviction. She was born Laverne Williamson, another daughter of a coal miner in Pike County, Kentucky in 1923. As a 16-year-old, she joined her brother's band in Charleston, West Virginia, taking the name Mountain Fern. In 1941, she married Lynn Davis, and together they performed throughout the South. In Montgomery, she met Hank Williams, who was then unknown. She became the first to record his songs. But after her early success and popularity, she began to have doubts about the performing life, and in 1949 suffered a nervous breakdown. Then after contracting tuberculosis and losing part of one lung, she and her husband joined the Church of God, turned their backs on show business, refused offers from the recording companies, and spent the next 30 years preaching and singing in obscure little churches in the coal towns of East Kentucky and West Virginia. She died of cancer at age 64 in 1987. She described her singing in the simplest terms. I sing from the heart. I always have. I don't think they're doing that enough these days. The most flamboyant female country performer of all time was undoubtedly Cousin Emmy. She was born Cynthia May Carver to a musical family in a log cabin near Glasgow. Although she only attended school for a total of two weeks, she learned to read from poring over mail-order catalogs. I ain't educated, but I'm sincere, she would say. 
and she had the intelligence and business savvy to be the first unmarried, independent, self-supporting, touring female artist in country music. Although she was mainly known for her banjo playing, she was also good enough on the fiddle to win the National Old Time Fiddle Contest in Louisville in 1935. Her band, The Kinfolks, consisted of children she had adopted as well as strays and homeless people she had picked up who could play an instrument. Piled into her Cadillac, they traveled the country doing time at the major radio stations and eventually ending up in California. She was playing at Disneyland when she was rediscovered by the new Lost City Ramblers in time to enjoy a brief second career in the folk revival of the 1960s. With her bright red lipstick, big toothy grin, wild hair done up in ribbons, and playing the fiddle between her legs, she was the country equivalent of Lady Gaga. Her single girl is a timeless lament. to my grave Oh, I wish I was a single girl again Oh, I wish I was a single girl again Got no one to help me, oh, I have it all to do. Oh, I wish I was a single girl again. Going back and listening to some of my favorite songs and tunes played by women, I realized that over time I'd learned to listen in new ways to old music and that listening itself is also an ongoing journey. Just as we learn to play an instrument, we also have to learn to listen. An old man I once knew said in honest amazement the first time he ever heard an opera singer, 
It sounds like she's treed something. That showed he was listening, and he related it to his own experience. I truly believe that anyone can sing. It is not so much about technique, but more about the spiritual growth that leads to self-discovery and acceptance. These women musicians, as they were called, were not trained except by listening to others and their family and the sounds of nature, and that process had been going on for a long time. Their voices may not sound pretty and sweet to modern ears, but they have a sound that comes out of deep histories and old souls. I hope that by listening to these voices we might be inspired to discover something in ourselves and sing and play more. To all the women featured in this program, music was much more than entertainment. It was a necessary component of survival, and I think it is for us too. I'm John Herod. Thanks for listening. Bowling Green. Bowling. This program was produced by Rich Kirby at WMMT the community radio service of Apple Shop Incorporated in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Special thanks to Rachel Goodman for use of her recordings. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, a tribute to Kentucky women and traditional music produced by Rich Kirby and John Harrod. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes again, you can find it on our website, www.wmmt.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.